touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Everyone and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today's topic comes to us courtesy of a listener. Actually, I had blogged about this topic. It's the Ice Cube Neutrino Telescope. And I wrote a little uh, Twitter message about, hey, I got to write about this telescope that's buried a mile beneath the ice. And immediately, Nick on Twitter said, you should do a podcast about that. And I thought, I should do a podcast we about should. that. Because I've already done the research for that thing. So that's why you got this research out so quickly. Yeah. I see how it goes. Well, you know, okay. it's repurposing. No, no, it's actually, <laughs> here's the thing. Well, one, it's buried under the ice, so already it's super cool. But oh, no. I'm sorry. Not, oh. It's already started. But uh, I genuinely find this absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's it's the world's largest neutrino detector. It's buried a mile under the ice. It's this is something that if you had told me was in a science fiction story, I would have said, that's just silly. That's a that's a lame Bond villain's layer. Like, yeah, there's what? no way that would really exist. And it totally exists. Yes. So what is it looking for? It's looking for evidence of neutrinos, which are these massless Near or massless. nearly massless uh-huh. particles. Uh, with no electrical charge. And we'll talk more about them a little bit later. Yeah, because specifically it's looking for, for interactions of neutrinos with stuff. Yeah. But, um, but we'll, yes. Yeah, because as it turns out, neutrinos are a little tricky. They uh, but they, it, it is at the South Pole, or really it's underneath it. Um, it's, it's in Antarctica. <laughs> and, uh, specifically, like I said, it's about a mile beneath the surface of the ice. Uh, between, between, uh, 1,500 and 2,000 meters or 1 to 1. 1.5 miles. About. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. That's, and it's takes up about a cubic kilometer of ice, which is about a uh, two thirds of a mile on each side. Yep. So just imagine, uh, an area underneath the surface of the ice in Antarctica that is this kilometer by a kilometer by a kilometer in, in, in proportions. And that is a telescope. And the reason why it's there is because, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that the ice provides a medium through which the neutrinos travel. And, right? uh, and an exceptionally clear medium at that. The pressure of the ice that deep has uh, has pushed all the air bubbles out. Right. So it's incredibly clear. And uh, also when you get to be about a mile down below the surface... Things get a little dark. Uh, yeah, especially when sunlight isn't hitting you for, what, uh, seven or eight months out of the year? Right, right. So it's already in a part of the world where, yeah, for eight months out of the year, you have no sun. And it's un- a mile down. And so it's really, really dark. The medium it's in is really clear. And both of those things are incredibly important. So when was this thing actually built? Well, it was proposed in 1999, yeah, but um, uh, it wasn't actually approved as a project until May 1st, 2004. Right. Uh, they began building it in December 2004. They started melting the holes they would need to drill down to put the various sensors that are part of this telescope. Uh, they started drilling those on, on uh, December 1st, 2004. Uh, the very last sensor was placed... In uh, December 2010. Yeah, so six years to do a complete telescope. Now, they had already started to gather information from the sensors they had uh, placed up to that point. But it wasn't until they did that last row in uh, 2010 for it to be a completed Completely project. Online. Yeah. Right. So pretty cool. And um, 
It only cost, you know, a, a couple of bucks, right? A measly $271 million. As we would say in the old days of tech stuff, a princely sum. <laughs> Most of that money was provided by the National Science Foundation. They footed the bill for a, a tune of $242 million, and the rest came from funders from all, well, all around the world, really. Yeah. So it's truly an international effort. It's not something that is controlled by one entity. Uh, there's a, a kind of a, a consortium called the Ice Cube Collaboration that sort of represents all the different parties involved. Uh, right. It has a total staff of about 250 people from 41 institutions in 12 countries overall. Yep. Um, it's all led out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Right. And uh, some of the institutions that are part of this include the University of Delaware. Uh, they designed some of the key elements for the project. The Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, Clark Atlanta University, shout out to a local school. Hey, how about my rival college, Georgia Tech? Uh, I, of course, went to the University of Georgia. Georgia Tech are, are hated enemies. They were part of this as well. So we could actually we could literally go down the street and probably find someone who works who works on the project, works on this project, which is kind of exciting. Uh, the Niels Bohr Institute. You may have heard of us uh, talking about that when we did our Heisenberg episode. There's also Ohio State University, Pennsylvania State University, Stockholm University, University of Alberta, Edmonton, uh, University of Canterbury in New Zealand. And Oxford, so, so among lots of others. Uh-huh. So I mean, it's a it's it's a really big project, and it's something that a lot of people, uh, you know, physicists and engineers and computer science kids have been really excited to get in on. Exactly, and when you start looking into what this telescope does, and the the I hesitate to use the word, but the scope of the project, it's it's. You know, it's understandable why people are so eager to be part of it. Lauren is judging me and and grinning. And shaking her head. Uh, so let's talk about what it is they're looking for. Let's talk about these neutrinos, these nearly massless particles. So they're subatomic particles, meaning that they're smaller than actual atoms. Right. And uh, what's really interesting about them is is that they're they're electrically neutral. Yeah, which means that they aren't affected by electromagnetic forces. fields or forces. Exactly. Yeah. They they so if you were to have say a positively charged particle, an ion, flying through space, and it happened to come either close to another positively charged body, it would be repulsed by that and its direction would change. Or if it came close to a negatively charged body, it would be attracted to that and, again, its course would change, meaning that there'd be no way for you to tell where that particle originated from because they bounce around. Yeah, they could have been moving all over the place. It would look kind of like uh, the old uh, family circus uh, cartoons where Billy's pathway does the little dotted line over the entire neighborhood. You just don't know where it came from. But neutrinos don't have that charge. So they're not affected by positive or negative charges. That won't change the pathway. So you, so you know that they're traveling in a straight line. And and they're traveling extremely fast because they are massless or near massless. Uh, they can travel right up, nosing up to the to the speed of light. Right. Now, obviously, if they were to travel to the speed of light, that would be a problem. According to the theory of relativity, anything with mass would require infinite, infinite energy right. to get to the speed of light. So it's close, but not quite the speed of light. And... Uh, depending upon the medium, it can actually travel faster than light within that medium. Within that medium. Not within the vacuum of space. Right. But within the medium of, say, I don't know, 
ice. This will be important later on. Yes. Um, but but back to the basics here. Okay, so so we think that they're the second most common particle in the entire universe, the first uh, being photons. Right. So the, the fundamental unit of light is more, there's more of that than neutrinos, but that's the only thing out there besides the stuff we can't identify, like dark matter. But we'll get into that, too. Yes. Um, and, and there's there's three basic types of neutrinos or um, or flavors, as they are legitimately called in physics. Right. Which makes me just so excited. That, yeah. So yeah. it's vanilla, chocolate and Rocky Road. Is that it? <laughs> uh, close. It's okay. um, electron, muon and tau neutrinos. All right. So electrons, muons and tau are all negatively charged particles. Electrons are subatomic the, particles. Subatomic yeah. particles. Thank you. Uh, they are electrons, I would say, are the most familiar to people. Everyone who has taken basic science knows the electrons, the negatively charged particle that you find in atoms. Mm-hmm. They have uh, uh, energy shells that they stay in and orbit around a, a an atomic nucleus. Um, so, you know, those we're familiar with. Uh, muons and tau are a little more exotic. They are actually heavier than electrons, but they also have a negative charge. Right. Muons have about twice the mass of electrons and tau have almost four times the mass of electrons. And um, now most of what we know about neutrinos really only comes from research done in the past couple decades. But we will get to that. Yeah, we've got a whole timeline that was actually really fascinating to me to once again, it's one of those examples of how people way smarter than I am are able to figure out things about the universe without ever actually seeing any proof of it. Yeah. yeah. Which is phenomenal. Come up with, with answers to questions that we have not even thought of. Yeah, yet. I would just think my equations must be wrong because things aren't equaling out. These are people who are saying my equations can't be wrong. So something's going on that I don't know so about. So I need to invent a new particle to explain it. Exactly. And it turned out it works. So, All right, so where do they come from? Uh, well, from from a bunch of different places. They uh, can come from lots of cosmological events like um, like like supernova oh, yeah. or, or even the sun. OK, so so, you know, weak stuff, right? This little low power. Type. No, now obviously yeah, black holes, no big. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tiny little stuff, you know, just the things that can rip a galaxy apart. Uh, yeah, it, it turns out that neutrinos can be generated lots of different ways. But the ones that we are particularly interested in are these high energy neutrinos that would be so high energy as to be it would be impossible for them to have originated in our solar system. Right. Because we can detect the neutrinos that uh, come to us courtesy of the sun or the ones that are formed within the Earth's atmosphere. But the more elusive ones are neutrinos that might come from a, a, a cosmological event that happened on the other side of the galaxy millions of years ago. Oh, well, and, and those those larger events create vastly more neutrinos than, say, the sun would create on any given day. But since the sun is so much closer to us, we're basically inundated with yeah. with neutrinos from the sun, electron neutrinos specifically, right. um, uh, as, as a byproduct of the nuclear fusion that goes on in in, in the sun, the yeah. Sun. Where, uh, you know, if you if you hold up your hand to sunlight, billions of neutrinos pass through it in a single second. Yeah. Now, remember, because these are subatomic particles and they have no mass, these things, they're so small and they're moving so quickly, they can pass right through what would appear to be completely solid matter, because I don't know if you know this or not, solid matter still has gaps in it at the atomic level. Right. And so a neutrino can pass right through that, right through the Earth, and in fact, billions do every single day. So being able to detect these these uh, neutrinos that came from cosmological events would tell us more about our universe, which is why we're so interested in them. 
All right, so we've already talked a little bit about how neutrinos behave. They aren't affected by electrical charge. They move nearly at the speed of light. And the nice thing is, is that if we detect a neutrino and we're able to observe the effects that the neutrino has had on other atomic particles, then we can draw some information about that neutrino. For example, where it may have come from and how powerful it was. And so that is why we're looking at the cosmological ones versus the ones that we would say are emanating from our sun. Um, because they are so they're they're nearly massless. They're also barely affected by gravity. So because that's one thing that things with mass do get affected by is gravity. But gravity out of the four fundamental forces of the universe is the weakest. Right. Right. So the only real force that tends to affect neutrinos is the weak atomic force. But that uh, only takes effect at incredibly short distances. We're talking on the atomic scale. Right. So this is the kind of stuff that holds atoms together. And so unless you're unless you're as close to and I forget the exact distances that we're that we're talking about here, but it's 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 like, yeah, as close as you can possibly get without being the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> pretty yeah. much Man- nanobits. Um, yeah. Plonk is what we're talking about here. Uh, incredibly short distances. So, you know, otherwise they just, like I said, are fly through, uh, uninhibited. They just go straight in a straight line. So by seeing the direction that they traveled in through the evidence they leave, which we'll talk about in a second, then we can determine where they came from. And, and if we are able to measure how much energy there was in that neutrino, then that can give us an idea of what might have eventually spawned it. For example, if we are able to see what direction it came from and we figure it was pretty powerful and we end up kind of tracing back that pathway and we see that that pathway takes it through to what used to be a supernova, you could potentially say, hey, this neutrino was uh, it came to us from that supernova. That's pretty phenomenal stuff. That means we can learn more about a, a, a thing that happens in our universe that otherwise we would never be close enough to observe. Pretty mysterious. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, unfortunately, since they don't interact with matter all that much, uh, you know, you know, there's for for about every hundred billion neutrinos that pass through the Earth, only one or so is going to interact with anything. Yeah. And since it's really the interactions with stuff that we're looking for, not the neutrinos themselves, uh, that that is part of why they are a so elusive and b so attractive as a field of scientific study. Exactly. And that's also an explanation of why the Ice Cube telescope is so enormous. If you were to create a human-sized neutrino detector, it would take you a century before you would be likely to detect a neutrino. Whereas if you make it a cubic kilometer, you have increased your odds of that happening uh, by quite a bit, as by it turns out. Yeah. By more than two. So when did we first figure out that there were these things, or at least suspect that they existed? Uh, that, that first suspicion was in 1931. Um, that was theorist uh, Wolfgang Pauli. Yeah. He was looking at uh, some radioactive decay equations and saw that there was some missing energy. And Energy can't be created or destroyed. Right. So he figured there has to be something responsible for this. And um, and therefore, there there has to be a particle that's being given off. Exactly. During this radiation yep. process. There's some undetectable particle that is making off with some of this energy. It must be a, a, a electrically neutral. Right. And massless. Yeah. So he, he figured out the basics of what must have been there, but had no way of detecting it. 
And, uh, you know, this is, again, something that sounds phenomenal to me. I can't imagine coming up with this conclusion. But if you look at particle physics, this is a story that we see happen over and over again, where people see something, they theorize or hypothesize what must be happening, and then future experiments end up bearing that out. Right. Um, now, the term neutrino wasn't coined until 1934 by uh, by Enrico Fermi. Oh, Fermi. We've talked about Fermi before. Yes. Yeah. So uh, neutrino is an Italian word, and I think it means enormous pasta dish. Little neutral one, I think, is the more common translation. Uh, well, I was using poetic license. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's, you know, it was a... Uh, it still had not been actually seen or observed. Right, right. Um, but this, this was just a kind of formal equation that he was using that incorporated Pauli's ideas. Right. So you have to skip from 1934 all the way to 1959 before you get to some scientists who observed a neutrino. And that would be Clyde Cowan and uh, Fred Rains, who discovered a particle that fit all the expected characteristics of what was being called the neutrino. So now it was no longer hypothetical. Now they actually had a particle they could point to and say, that's it. This thing that we found in the lab, that thing is probably a neutrino. Um, and specifically what they found was an electron neutrino, which is, um, uh, and I think that we forgot to explain this part earlier, but the three different kinds of neutrinos pair with three different kinds of particles. So, right. so electron neutri- neutrinos pair with electrons. Right. And muon neutrinos pair with muons. So they're Maybe heavier. They have more that. mass. You guys tell us. <laughs> the tau neutrinos are a little heavier than the muons. So, yeah, each neutrino has a mass that is equivalent. Well, not not equivalent. It matches, in a sense, the size of the other subatomic particle, because actually a an electron neutrino has less mass than an electron does. Way, way, ma- yeah. way less mass. But yeah. it, but they they scale up as the uh, negatively charged subatomic particles scale up as well. So I don't mean to suggest that an electron and an electron neutrino are equivalent th- uh, in the sense of mass. They are not. But now we get up to 1962 when another. Uh, uh, organization we're familiar with, CERN. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, along with the Brookhaven National Laboratory. Yeah, they independently conducted experiments and discovered a second type of neutrino, which was the muon neutrino. And it behaved differently from the electron neutrino. That's what first gave them a little bit of confusion. In fact, to a point where they would expect to s- observe a certain number of neutrinos coming from the sun on any given day. And they had a certain number that they expected for electron neutrinos and a certain number for muon neutrinos. And for some reason, that wasn't working out. And they could not figure out why that was. And they couldn't figure out why that was for a long time. A very long time. So 1978, you have the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, and they discovered the tau subatomic particle, which was the negatively charged subatomic particle that's heavier than electron or muon. And that led the scientists to hypothesize that perhaps there was, in fact, a third type of neutrino because there already were neutrino counterparts for the other two negatively charged particles. So now they had the the tau neutrino, um, but they could not directly observe it. Uh, and at that point, they were still kind of wondering why there seems to be this neutrino shortage. You know, based upon their calculations, there should be more than what they were detecting. Yeah, like uh, like twice again as much. Right. And uh, then we get up to, in 1987, uh, an enormous neutrino detector is built. The uh, Kamiokande, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, neutrino detector. It was a large water detector. Not meaning that, I don't mean that it was detecting large amounts of water. 
I meant that it had a large amount of water and it used that as the detector. Now, this water was incredibly pure and incredibly clear. So clear that sunlight could pass through it without slowing down for something like 70 meters, which is far longer than it could if it were passing through the water of, say, your typical swimming pool. Yeah, uh, in in your typical swimming pool, you might get a couple of meters if you're lucky. Right. So it it was very, very clear, and that was important to detect these tiny little reactions that the neutrino would cause if it collided with another subatomic particle. And it also had more than 11,000 light collectors that were called photomultiplier tubes in the water itself. And those were what were looking for these these reactions that we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, so that was a huge advance. It was an enormous neutrino detector, one of the largest until the Ice Cube one comes along. Uh, 1989, CERN starts uh, to experiment and determine that no other types of neutrinos beyond the three types that had already been identified could exist based upon what we know. So maybe one day we'll find out we're wrong about that. But based upon everything we know right now, it appears that only those three types of neutrinos, the electron, muon, and tau, are the ones that exist. Right. Um, now, in 2001, was that was when we finally solved that solar neutrino problem that we were talking about earlier. Um, experiments that were conducted at the Canadian Solar Neutrino Observatory, or SNOW, um, showed, because it's in Canada, there's... Nice. Anyway, eh? showed that it could be solved with the explanation that, okay, so, so even though the sun releases only electron neutrinos... They oscillate sometimes while they travel through space to become a pretty even mix of muon tau and electron neutrinos. So that that explains like if they're oscillating and some of them are tau neutrinos, which we have not been able to observe directly, that would that would explain the apparent uh, shortage of neutrinos. Uh, Right. Previous experiments, most previous experiments were really only looking for electron neutrinos, especially coming from the sun. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the instruments were not calibrated to be detecting muon and tau. Right. So and that's because if it's if it's oscillating, it has to have mass. It's right. One of those things. Yeah. Um, Fundamental nature. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, they're still really tiny. An electron neutrino would be about one one millionth the mass of an electron. Yeah, that's that's incredibly that's inconceivably tiny, at uh, least to my mind. But but something so inconceivably tiny is very important on a universal level because this could possibly explain why uh why the universe contains more matter than antimatter why we think right th- this could explain dark matter basically yeah, exactly it could well when you get to why more um, matter than antimatter that explain that would explain why the universe is the way it is because if there had been an equal amount of matter and antimatter it would have all annihilated itself and we wouldn't have a universe which would be terrible because that's where i keep all my stuff now how do we actually create neutrinos ourselves? Well, it's mostly through particle accelerators. You know, you move some subatomic particles fast enough and smash them to see what happens. And some of the stuff that gets spun off tends to be these other subatomic particles and uh, energy that we would otherwise not have been able to observe. And neutrinos are one of those. Although, again, we don't directly observe the neutrinos. We observe the reactions that they have with other stuff. Oh, right. And these neutrinos that we can create here on Earth are much lower in energy than most of the ones that we're seeing from, uh, from-, from, from the sun and way lower than anything that would be produced from a cosmological event. So, yeah, if you compare the neutrinos from the, the ones 
ones that have been detected at the ice cube detector versus the ones that have been created in the lab, it's worlds of difference. So we've got a lot more we want to talk about with the ice cube detector, including how it actually detects these neutrinos, or at least the interactions the neutrinos are having with other particles. But before we do that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, let's get back into the discussion about ice cube. What is this thing actually made of? Okay, so we talked about there are these sensors that are buried a mile beneath the ice. But what are the sensors, actually? Well, first of all, I like your verbal suggestion that we are talking, in fact, about the rap- the wrapper ice cube. Um, <laughs> well, but- <laughs> yeah. what was that not it? Man, the second half of this episode is going to be so confusing. Okay, the the main components of of Ice Cube are um, these these digital optical modules or DOMs. Yep, and each one is about the size of a basketball, and they are specifically looking for a, a very um, peculiar kind of light. And I'll, I'll talk more about that in a second. But you know, now they are uh, deep within the ice. That means that we can't really fix them if something goes wrong. Yeah, there's really no diving down into uh, uh, a mile of ice to yeah. fix. To be a, well, Dom number 473 is on the fritz. Yeah, well, we can actually, we being the people <laughs> who are actually working not, on ice Not cube, Jonathan and I, no, no. No, we're not given access to this sort of thing. But they, they can make software updates and firmware updates. Each one of those Doms is wired to the headquarters, which is at the South Pole. Uh, the South Pole headquarters houses lots of different stuff, not just the ice cube cube project. There are other projects that are at the South Pole as well. But that's one of the ones, and they're all wired in there so that you can administer commands to the DOMs and update their software uh, as needed. So uh, there are a few of them. Uh, there's actually 60 uh, uh, DOMs per hole. And there are 86 holes so drilled into the ice. If we do a little bit of math, that comes up with about 5,160 of these things. Uh, the, these holes were drilled by um, by shooting hot pressurized water down into the ice, which then uh, froze back over um, through a very careful engineering process into that very clear ice that we were looking for. Right. Yeah, I'll have to uh, see if I can find some photos that we can link to because the photos of these holes where they just they shot a picture straight down the the hole after it was drilled is vertigo inducing. It's pretty amazing stuff to be looking down a, a you know, a perfect circle that goes down a mile. It, it reminded me very much of all the things that I didn't want to jump down into in Silent Hill 2 that I just kept <laughs> having to jump down into. Now, on top of the literally on top of these 5,160 doms uh, on the surface of the ice itself are an additional 324 digital operating modules. And that is part of a second detector called ice top. Right. So you have uh, the 5,160 underneath the surface and 324 on the surface, all of which are looking for these neutrino interactions. Okay. So how exactly are are they looking for these interactions? All right. So when a neutrino uh, meets another subatomic particle that it really likes, uh, it's traveling at a pretty high amount of energy, uh, you tend to have a muon emitted as part of this uh, interaction. And it's going to be moving in the same direction as the neutrino. So when a neutrino makes contact with a subatomic particle in the ice, within an ice molecule, uh, a muon is given off, and that ends up producing something called Cherenkov radiation. 
Now, Cherenkov radiation is emitted whenever a particle moves through a medium faster than light could move through that same medium. So in this case, the neutrino is moving through that ice faster than light could travel through that ice. And it makes contact with the subatomic particle. You end up having this muon uh, given off as a result, and you get this light blue radiation. This is uh, typical of any kind of nuclear uh, radioactive process. You get this blue glow as a result. So what these detectors are looking for is evidence of that blue glow. And when they detect it, they record it, and it's measured. So you can get an entire track of this through the the kilometer of ice and find out where it came from and get uh, an idea from the intensity of the light, how much energy that neutrino had. So you're looking at the direction of the light and the intensity of it to infer the information about this subatomic particle, which is awesome. <laughs> I just think that's so amazing that you can learn so much from just a, a pattern of light. And uh, it really is a lot. It's a ton of light. Uh, and ton of information that they are gathering each year, something like a terabyte of data per day that they're gathering uh, that ends up being just about 100 gigabytes by oh. the time they're done with it. Well, so. no big. Yeah, yeah, it's but... tiny, tiny. <laughs> but yeah, 100 gigabytes once they filter through all the data. But uh, that's exactly what they're looking for. And that's why these detectors have to be so far underground in such dark, clear conditions for it to be able to detect they're looking this. for these very small little packets of light yeah. that are just... Boom. Yeah, it happens in an instant, and they are so faint that if it were not that dark, you would never be able to detect it. So that's the uh, that's the whole purpose of this thing. And because neutrinos are given off by lots of stuff besides just the sun or by particle accelerators, we can, if we detect the right types, learn more about stuff like cosmic rays, gamma ray bursts, supernova. Um, we might also be able to start to infer things about dark matter and dark energy, things that we do not we, – we know have to exist based upon our understanding of our universe, but we have no evidence for. But again, yeah, right now they're really just, just mathematical placeholders. Right. Yeah, because it, when I say we have no evidence for it, we have no direct evidence. We have lots of indirect evidence by the way that the universe behaves, and the way it behaves is different from how – we would understand it based upon the matter and energy we are able to observe. So this might be able to give us more clues about that and learn more about our our universe. Pretty cool stuff. So like we said, it's gathering lots of information every single day. Uh, it's already detected several interesting neutrinos. In uh, May 2013, they reported that they had detected 28 neutrinos that had higher energy levels than what they would expect from any neutrinos that would be emitted by the sun or any other uh, nearby system within our solar system. So it must be that these came from outside the solar system, assuming everything else is correct, which is incredibly exciting. In fact, two of them had so much high energy that they broke all records of all neutrinos ever detected, and they got nicknames. They got they were nicknamed Bert and Ernie. Bert and Ernie. So, uh, yeah, uh, I assume one of them has an affinity for rubber duckies. And the other one is a neat freak. So, uh, yeah, it's really exciting, though, that these could possibly have come from outside our solar system and could be evidence for something that happened light years away millions of years ago. That's that's incredible. So uh, we're 
still waiting to hear more about that. They, as of the recording of this podcast, there are plenty of scientists still poring over this information. Uh, of course, scientists are very careful before uh, saying definitively whether or not something came from outside the solar system. That seems to be the in- indication, but they don't want to, yeah, right. they don't want to jump to conclusions. You don't want to have another, hey, the Voyager left the solar system. No, <laughs> wait, no, it didn't. No, no, it totally did. No, it didn't. Okay, it did, but it did it a year ago. <laughs> we don't want another one of those, right? No, no, no. I, I, I think it's much preferable in the scientific community to be like, we're not sure about this thing than like, we're sure. Oh, we're wrong. Yeah. So this is what we call exploratory science in the sense that there's not like a specific practical application. And there's no particular end goal. It's just learning for the sake of learning. Which is invaluable because even though i mean there there are some philosophies that say that science needs to be goal oriented like there needs to be an actual practical goal to whatever scientific exploration you're doing but that kind of it puts blinders on right because just by learning stuff you never know what kind of useful applications can come out of that yeah if people hadn't been studying subatomic particles we would never have come up with transistors right um, so yeah, you can't predict what sort of world-changing uh, discoveries can come out of exploratory science. So personally, I find this to be an absolutely fascinating use of resources to learn more about our universe. And you never know how that information is going to play out in ways that we just can't anticipate right now. Yeah. Right. So absolutely. I think it's pretty darn awesome. But uh, but more practically, what what exactly is it like living and working uh, you know, at, at the South at Pole. At the South Pole. Yeah, it, there's a great... With a, with a giant ice telescope. I, I have to give a shout out. The Ice Cube website is fantastic. It's got it really is. tons it's, of information. And, and a lot of great video interviews. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it is highly recommended. You'll have to go and check it out. But one of the sections is about what's it like at the South Pole. So first of all, it, it describes what your experience would be like just to get to the South Pole. Because first, assuming you don't live in uh, New Zealand or Australia... You, you've got a little bit of a trip ahead of you, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I mean, first you need to be issued some clothing that will keep you from freezing to death. Yeah, that that you can probably pick up somewhere in New Zealand, maybe, you know, because the, that's the only way to get from, uh, the, at least by air, to the, Antar- to the Antarctic. I mean, you could go by boat, but still you would have to pick up a lot of clothing to keep you from freezing. Yes. Um, so, yeah, you would fly to Australia, fly to New Zealand, get all this clothing because, you know, you want to keep all your fingers and toes and your nose and other I, I imagine you do. I don't want to speak for all of humanity. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but so, but so Many yeah. of you would like to keep your fingers and toes. <laughs> from New Zealand, uh, you board a military transport to the U.S. station McMurdo. Oh, not just a military transport, a Lockheed Hercules. <laughs> Lauren, we just talked about those. We did. Yeah, it's a Lockheed Hercules military transport that you would board. Uh, clearly not one of the ones that the CIA is operating. <laughs> so Probably. Pr- yeah. Question mark. As, as far as you know. <laughs> uh, if it, if it has, you know, non-standard Lockheed Hercules equipment on it, maybe it's one of the CIA ones. But anyway, yeah, that takes you to, uh, to McMurdo, which is on the coast of Antarctica. And from there, you would have to wait for a while. Um, and get another flight out to the South Pole where you would land, walk outside, and immediately shield your eyes because it's bright. on skis. Yes. 
that's my favorite part, honestly. Yeah. I, for, for some reason, landing on skis just makes me incredibly happy. Yeah, this Hercules has skis instead of wheels because, you know, you can not so useful in the Antarctic. Right. Uh, so th- that South Pole station has 200 people in it. Um, only oh. only about 50 of those would be it, during during the height of study during any given year yeah. uh, through the winter. About 50 people are, are going to be stationed at the right. Ice Cube. Right. And uh, only a couple are there year round, like stay like for the full two. year. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and so it has uh, it's got a couple of amenities. It's got a kitchen. It's got a gym. It's got a greenhouse. greenhouse. Yep. Dining room. Uh, so it's got actually uh, meeting rooms and things like that. They have a lot of uh, extracurricular activities for people so they don't go snow crazy. Is that is that the scientific term? Uh, I would call it that. If you watch The Shining, I, I would call that snow crazy. They don't want any Jack Torrances running around the South Pole. So so they don't have a lot of topiary in the greenhouse no, is what you're saying. I, I'm guessing okay. no hedge mazes over at the <laughs> South Pole. But they do they do have lots of different lectures you can attend. Apparently the people will show up and find out that they have complimentary musical skills and a lot of bands end up forming at the South Pole. Um you know, it's, it's kind of interesting stuff. And there's, I was, I was actually very much entertained. I love the idea. One of the things is you could take classes in, in totally non-related things. Completely like, unscientific. Like Scottish dance. That. I just love the idea of all these scientists doing a Scottish Highland dance in the South at the Pole. South Pole <laughs> in parkas? Yeah, in parkas and, and lab coats. I- <laughs> so, um, uh, it did say that things like, Preparing food at the South Pole is a little different from other places in the world. Because thong, it can take uh, anywhere from several hours to like a couple weeks. Yeah. They said that if you wanted to, say, serve ice cream, you would take it out of the freezer and let it sit out for, you know, half a day or else you would need a hacksaw to uh, to make a serving. So I thought that was pretty interesting, too. They have lots of educational outreach programs to various high schools and colleges throughout the world. And uh, they have programs where schools can have someone talk to them about the project uh, via webcast or even come in. Yeah. Yeah. Because not all these scientists are working at the South Pole. Some of them are working remotely. They get the data sent up to them via satellite and then they work on that. But they're still doing very important work in in the whole uh, experiment. And they can talk at length about what it is they do and why it's important. So lots of schools, if your school is interested in that sort of thing, go to the Ice Cube website. You can totally check it out there. Mm-hmm. And if your school has high aspirations and and a high budget, yeah, they can actually look into paying a visit to the South Pole headquarters and finding out more about the Ice Cube detector. I think paying is probably the operative word because it is expensive to yeah. get to Antarctica. It Did is, you know? Yeah, I, I noticed. <laughs> I saw that between for an average person, if you're just talking about a tour, you're not even talking about going down to the South Pole to see the headquarters, just just to look at Antarctica can be between $4,000 and $11,000 per person. So it is a bit dear. However, it, I think it, you know it's a once-in-a-lifetime kind of oh, opportunity, absolutely. right? Yeah. Except for the people who live there where it's every day. But for most of us, it's a once-in-a-lifetime type thing. So I think it would be absolutely uh, cool to go visit it, to bring things back around again. Lauren, you can't really start or end a Tech Stuff episode without having you judge me, so yeah. <laughs> we have to... You already you, you, you already did that pun. You should come up with some fresh new puns uh, and flash freeze them I'll, I'll, in the waters of the... Look, stop. Collaborate and listen. <laughs> Ice is back with a brand new invention. All right, guys, that wraps up this Much topic. Better. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Uh. 
it's time to go solo. No, not really. Not really. All right, guys, if you enjoyed this episode or maybe you have something you want to add to the discussion, perhaps about particle physics, or maybe it's just that there's another related topic you've always wanted to hear about, or maybe it's something we just never, ever mentioned, write to us. Let us know what you think. Techstuff at discovery.com is our email address. And you can also let us know on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. We are at techstuffhsw at all three of those. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.